us, Lord. Lord, we do praise you this night. We do praise you for all of your goodness, all of your kindness to us, Lord. And, and like I said earlier, Lord, we are so small, so finite, so inconsequential in the history of your creation. And yet you bestow on us a great name. You bestow on us a purpose. You bestow on us a reality that's worth living. If we can submit to you, if we can choose to follow after you, God, if we can choose to be people of faith, Lord, you have glorious purpose in store for us. It may not look like we want it to look. It may not be easy. It may be deep suffering. And yet there's value in that because you're in it. It's valuable not because it's everything we wanted it to be. It's all our desires. It's valuable because you're there. Because you're present. God, thank you. As we continue this series in Genesis that we're seeing the kind of God who walks with humans. This God who loves them despite them, who is so willing to be in their midst even though we do nothing to merit that. God, thank you for walking with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as we continue on now in Genesis, we're in chapter 20. Last week we were at a really dark place. Went through chapters 18 and 19, which were about the intercession of Abraham for Sodom. And then, of course, his intercession, though it is poignant and powerful and shows the character of God, Sodom is irredeemable. It is unrepentant. It is doomed for destruction. It's meant for destruction because it is such a wicked, unrepentant, evil place. And of course, we saw that most clearly in Genesis 19. And of course, the ending of that story, from where we left off, Lot, who escapes with his life as a righteous man, odd, not on the level of Abraham, but a righteous man, as the New Testament calls him. And yet, he's left with nothing. He's in a cave He's lost all his wealth. Remember back in 13, he had to separate from Abraham. It was so, he was so wealthy, and he'd lost everything, living in a cave, his daughters getting him drunk and committing incest with him. A dark place to leave off. And where we're approaching is still this moment, still this promise we've been waiting for since Genesis, really Genesis 11, when we walked down the genealogy and we got to Abraham, and what was most noticeable about Abraham? It's that his wife, Sarai, was barren. All the way back in Genesis 11. And we've been waiting for the unfolding of that reality now. He's, had, he's been promised a land, and we saw that covenant in Genesis 15. He's been promised a seed. We're still waiting for that to be filled, fulfilled. And he's been promised a blessing, and to be a blessing. But here in Genesis 20, we're going to read a familiar story. I titled this week, Abraham the Prophet. Because God's going to make a claim about who Abraham is in this passage. It's the first time this word, the first time this title is appended to anyone in the scriptures. Navi, a prophet. Here in Genesis 20, we see that 
I'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to the verse in which the Lord calls him a prophet. But where we start in Genesis 20 sounds very familiar. We've seen this before. This is Genesis 12 all over again. Verse 1, Abraham now journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev. So he's heading to the south. He's going to the south land. And he settled between Kadesh and Shur. There he sojourned in Gerar, which is kind of the southeastern part of Canaan. He's still in Canaan. He's not in Egypt yet. He's in Canaan. But he's kind of near the border. He's kind of right at the edges of it. And, and remember, Abraham's still a nomadic type of person. He still wanders. He sojourns. So he's in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, he's going to say it again, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. This is a totally parallel story to what we saw in Genesis 12. This is the exact setup of what happened in Egypt. Abraham went there Sarah was taken by Pharaoh, and there's these plagues that come upon the house of Egypt and upon Pharaoh's household, and he leaves with, with loot and plunder, and he's sent out of the land. They escort him out of it, and it's this big uh, pre-enactment, I called it back then, a pre-enactment of what Israel's going to go through in Egypt, right? Well, this is a different story. It's a different place, but it's similar. And this is much less focused on the backstory and much more intimate in the details of what happens after she's taken. Listen to this, what happens to Abimelech. So Abimelech's taken Sarah. That's all it says. We don't know how long she's been there. We don't know why she was taken per se. There's not much background info. But here it says this, God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man. Because of the woman you, whom you have taken, for she is married. The Lord comes and he says, it's over for you. Your life is forfeit. You're dead. You, what's the point? It's you've sinned greatly by taking this woman. She's a married woman. You're committing Adultery. Now, they haven't actually had intercourse yet, and we know that because it's going to talk about it. Right? It says, verse 4, Now, Abimelech had not come near her. He had not approached her. That's euphemistic. He had not had intercourse with her. And so Abimelech says this, Lord, are you going to slay a nation even though I'm righteous? Is the word Sadiq? Righteous? Even though I'm righteous? What's his point? I'm innocent. Even though I haven't done anything, are you going to slay this, this kingdom? Did Abraham him, not himself say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. I did this not knowing what was. And then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. And I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now it seems to be, especially when we get to the end of this account, 
There's some kind of sickness or something that's come upon Abimelech, right? Kind of like the plagues we saw in Genesis 12. That he has not approached Sarah, this new woman who's entered his harem. He did not approach her. Probably from, as it's clear here, from the Lord's intervention. There's something that's prevented him from doing that. And the Lord says, I'm the one who prevented you from acting out this great sin. Verse 7, now therefore... Restore the man's wife. This is still the Lord speaking. For Abraham is a prophet. And he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die. You and all who are yours. Okay. I talked about this when we did Genesis 12. I'm going to bring it up again. My interpretation of this passage is different than most people's because the focus of most commentators, most scholars, when they get to Genesis 12 and then also Genesis 20 is that this is something deeply grievous and wrong that Abraham has done. To to lie to everyone and say, this is my sister and I'm going to prevent, you know, I don't trust the Lord and I I just really don't believe he's going to protect me so I make up this lie and this scheme. Reading that, there's no indication to me that that's the the way the passage should be interpreted. This especially. Now, I'm not saying, I said this then too, I'm not saying that there's not something necessarily sinful, that it's perfect or, or righteous in action. But I'm saying the Lord has not told Abraham this is something he shouldn't engage in. This is something wrong. He's not told him, don't do this, Abraham. Like we know later on in the Pentateuch, it it talks about. It'll talk about some of the things that the patriarchs did that aren't approved of, right? Like marrying two sisters, like Jacob does with Leah and Rachel. That's, That's forbidden in the law. But that's later than this age. It's later than these patriarchs. But here, one thing that's so interesting, like I said, is most people assume this is bad. What's crazy to me, if that's the case, why does the Lord not say that? This would be the moment. If the Lord's going to say, man, Abraham was really wrong. This would be the time for him to bring it up. This would be the Lord's divine speech in which he says, you're right, Abimelech. Abraham is wrong here. And I'm going to show him that he's wrong. None of that is said. In fact, it seems like the Lord lays the impetus of the sin at Abimelech's feet. He opens up telling him, you're dead because of what you've done. And because you took her. You took her. Now, Abimelech clearly is innocent. That's confirmed. He didn't know what he was doing. That doesn't deny the, the, the wrongness of his action, but he didn't know. And that's why the Lord says, I've protected you. But actually, the Lord doesn't, not only does he not condemn Abraham's action, he actually upholds who Abraham is. He says, if you want to make this right, give his wife back to him and have him pray for you. Because he's a prophet. And the only way you're going to survive is if he prays to me for your life. Now, does that sound like what you'd expect if this is a deep, grievous sin on Abraham's part? 
I don't think so. I don't think so. There's greater realities going on here than just the fact that Abraham did some awful sin or something. There's something else. And in this moment, the reality is that Abraham is God's man. He's the one. He's the one that God chose. And he's going to say here, he is a prophet. And, you know, even though that word has never been used, the first time this word is used in the scriptures, Abraham is the first person in the Bible to be called a prophet. Abraham's a prophet. But even though we, we did not see that word anywhere else, we kind of understood that he was that, right? Remember Genesis 15. He receives the vision and hears the word of the Lord. Remember Genesis 18. He does an intercessory prayer. The Lord lets him in on his plans about what he's about to do to Sodom. And then what does Abraham do? He prays an intercessory prayer. That's prophetic. That's, prof- that's a prophet's job. Just like Jeremiah, just like Moses just like the other great prophets of the Old Testament. Abraham is a prophet. Now, here comes the argument that most people make. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what have you encountered that you have done this thing? Now most people read that and they assume Abimelech is the rightful interpreter of this event. Because he says so explicitly. I don't understand why we accept Abimelech's interpretation and not God's. When we interpret this passage, why would we come to it and be like, oh yeah, Abimelech's right about how he interpreted it. And not accept that God says he's the prophet, he needs to pray for you so you can live. And the woman you took is the reason for this. I don't understand that, but that's what the consensus is that I disagree with. Abimelech is saying, well, this is all Abraham's fault. And he even uses the language we saw in Genesis 12. Remember, what have you done? Where did we see that? We saw it from Pharaoh in Genesis 12, and we saw it from God. God used it. He used it with Cain, right? When Cain had sinned. Again, I think this is another example of a foreign king acting like a god. What have you done? He's proclaiming judgment on Abraham. I don't think that is the right thing that he's doing, but I think that's what he is doing. So Abraham tries to explain it. He said, Abraham said, because I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister. The daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house. That's Genesis 12. Go. That I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Again, I I don't think it's, it's wrong that 
people come up with ways, nece just necessarily that they're wrong, that people come up with ways to protect themselves. I think we've seen this throughout the history of the church. Persecution comes. What, what do people do? Usually, Christians, when persecution comes, what do they do? They flee. We don't say, you're not faithful. You don't just trust God. You should just stay there and be beheaded and trust God. No. For some people, that's maybe what God calls them to. That may be the case. There may be martyrs that are called to that. But we don't get to chastise people and say they don't have faith because they had to come up with a, a plan to protect their lives. I think that's asinine to think that somehow it's inherently unfaithful to have to try to come up with wise plans and think things through about how to protect your life. And I think this is the way Abraham devised to do that. Clearly, he says, I, everywhere we go, I told Sarah to say this. It's a way of protecting him. Now, again, I'm not saying that means it's perfect or it's righteous or it's, it's wonderful. But clearly, God did not tell him not to do it. Because I actually think Abraham wouldn't have done it if God had told him that. There's nowhere that the Lord says, don't do this. Don't do this. And I don't see any indication in, in the actual text that tells us it's a bad thing, per se. Like we did see in Genesis 16, where it used all that language of the Garden of Eden to say, hey, Sarah and Abraham, big mistake here, when they gave Hagar to Abraham. There's all that language that tells you, this is just like the Garden of Eden, really bad. You don't see that here. But, one thing that Abraham clearly got wrong. And this is important. One thing that Abraham definitely got wrong is he said, surely there's no fear of God in this place. He thought it was a pagan place. He thought it was a heathen place. What is true about Abimelech is he seems to be a God-fearer. He receives a, a dream from the Lord, and what does he do? He responds immediately. Now remember, he does not know the God of Abraham. He's a Canaanite. He does not know the God of Abraham. And when he receives the dream, he tells his servants and immediately does, as we're going to see, immediately does what the Lord tells him to do. And then he actually, he, he repents even beyond what, he, what you think he would even be required to do and gives gives a, a great sum of money to Sarah, we're going to see that in these next verses, to, to repay her for any injustice done her. He actually is this repentant, God-fearing pagan king, this Gentile king. And that's unique. But one thing that it kind of reminds me of too is, remember, he's a Canaanite. What did we just read? We just read the story of Sodom. Are all the Canaanites just like Sodom? No. No, they're not. Abimelech is of a different type. In fact, it reminds me of when the Lord said earlier, I believe it's in Genesis 15, where he said what? The Canaanite sin has not reached its full measure. Do you remember that? He said, your descendants will go down into slavery in Egypt. And they'll be there for 400 years. Four generations they'll serve as, as slaves down there. But then I will free them and bring them back. And this land will become their possession. Why? Because the sin of the Amorites, is what he says. The sin of the Amorites, which is the Canaanites, has not reached its full measure. 
they still had a downward trajectory to go on for 400 years before the conquest was, was a judgment on them. Why? Well, probably because some of them were good people. Like this man, like this king, Abimelech. So Abraham has this, this idea that there's no fear of God. And in that, I admit fully, he is completely wrong. His belief that all of these people will be godless pagans is wrong. Abimelech is a good king and a good man. He cares about his nation even. What does he say to the Lord? Would you slay this whole nation? Because he cares about his people. He's not just thinking about his own life. So what does Abimelech do next after Abraham explains? Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him immediately, does it? Gives him gifts. And then Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. Listen to how different that is from Pharaoh. What did Pharaoh do? He immediately drove him out of Egypt. This king, this, this God-fearing pagan almost, what's he do? He says, no, my land is yours. Settle where you want. Again, look how clearly Abraham was wrong about no fear of God. Not only that, he's a generous king, a generous Gentile. Says, settle anywhere you like in the land. He does take a little dig here that I like, though. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver, a thousand shekels. Behold, it is your vindication, it's your justifying before all who are with you, and before all men you are cleared. What's the point of that? He's paid her a sum if she in any way feels dishonored or, or mistreated or feels that you know it would be a shame to know she's been taken into the harem when she's been married. So he pays for this gift and says this gift of, of, of money is it's to tell everyone that you have your honor, you have your purity, you have been justified before me and everyone. That's a good man. He responds to the wrong he did in, in true repentance. So then what's Abraham do? He prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they bore children. Okay, now we know the plague. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. There's the plague. No one was bearing children. Now that unlocks a lot of this narrative for us because one, it's a childless plague, which tells us two things. One, Sarah had to have been there a lot longer than we originally thought. Because you don't find out that no one in the household is bearing children in a day or two. Could be months that she was there. And obviously you're going to show signs before nine months. You don't have to go all the way to birth to figure it out. But the fact that could be two, three months before a woman might be showing, and all of a sudden no one's having children, that's part of the plague. 
That's part of the, the, what had happened to his household. So we know that this passage, this, this story happens a lot. It's happening a lot longer period of time than we thought. But also, it unlocks the point of this narrative. Why is it here? What's it trying to tell us? Well, remember, all we've been waiting for since really Genesis 12, but certainly since 17 with the promise, the promise of a son, the promise of Yitzhak, the laughing, the promise of Isaac, is for Abraham and Sarah to have a child. Specifically, Hagar, not going to cut it. Ishmael, he's going to be a great nation, but he's not the elect. He's not the chosen one. He's not the one to continue the line. It's got to be Isaac. What's the point of this narrative? You have a foreign king take Sarah into his harem again. Why is it important that they don't have marital intercourse? Because Isaac's got to be Abraham's. To protect the line, protect the seed, it not only has to be Sarah's, which we saw with, with Hagar. can't be Hagar. It's got to be Sarah. Well, it can't be Abimelech. It's got to be Abraham. This passage assures us that Isaac is the child of Abraham and Sarah. It's not the child of Abimelech and Sarah because there was no sexual union between them. The Lord made sure of it. He protected the line. And that's significant. But it also leaves us with this burning question. What is the end of this passage? The end of this passage is that the Lord had closed all the wombs of Abimelech's household. You know what's interesting? Sarah said the same thing. The Lord has closed my womb. Uses that exact same word in Hebrew. The Lord closed my womb. What is the burning question we're left with? It's this. Well, if the Lord can close all these wombs, why, why doesn't he or why can't he open Sarah's? Why hasn't he? It brings up in our minds this promise we've been waiting for since chapter 12. Really, like I said, since chapter 11, when they first told us, Sarai is barren. We're left with this, another time where the Lord shows his power to close and open wombs. <clears throat> Not only did he close the wombs of the household, when, when Abraham prayed, he opened them again. Why hasn't he done it for Sarah? We've been waiting all this time. This chapter is preparing us for 21. We're going to see Isaac finally. A fulfilled promise. And it's going to lead us about three weeks from now, into maybe one of the darkest chapters in, in Scripture in terms of us, if we were not to know the ending. We do know the ending, but if we were not to know the ending, if we were reading this for the first time, we've been waiting this whole time for Isaac. We get him in 21. We all are rejoicing. We have all, Abraham and Sarah have been waiting for this for 25 years. Then we get to that dark chapter 22, which starts with what? Abraham, take please your son, 
your only son, the son whom you love, and take him up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice him to me. The power of, cha of chapter 22, the power of Genesis 22, resides in the fact that we have been waiting for Isaac this whole time. That Abraham and Sarah have been waiting for him this whole time. That he is legitimately theirs, like this chapter tells us. This is the one, this is the promise we've been waiting for for a quarter of a century. And really, Sarah and Abraham, that's just since the promise, by the way. 25 years since the promise. They've been waiting their whole lives for a child. Sarah's borne her shame this whole time. Abraham has Ishmael, but not a child from his wife, Sarah. This chapter leaves us in that space. Wonder. Why has God not done this yet? When will he do it? When will it come to pass? This God who closes wombs and opens them, who gives plagues and heals. But like I told you, Abraham here, as you know, regardless of what the interpretation of this passage is, he's a prophet. He's God's man. He's the one who's told to pray for Abimelech and heal him so that the Lord may heal him. Abraham is this chosen one, the one who God walks with throughout all of these experiences. The Lord's still with him and the Lord's walking with him. And he hears the word of the Lord like a true prophet because he is a prophet. But we've watched Abraham's life and seen these vignettes. And the point is not to say he was a perfect man. That's not my goal is to defend Abraham at all costs or something. I want to see what the text is saying about who he is. And Abraham is the man of faith. Like that is the quintessential piece of who Abraham is. The man of faith. The one who believes. The one who circumcises the same day that the Lord gives him the promise, gives him the covenant. The one who, in Genesis 15, believes and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's Abraham. And all this time we've been waiting for this next moment that we're going to see next week when we read chapter 21, the fulfillment of this. That leads us to this picture right here. I used as the background, Genesis 22. I left it as the background because it's so significant. We've got to remember that the Lord walks with us too. On our broken path. And I know I've said this in, in an, at least one other sermon, probably multiple, but you've got to remember that these moments are far between each other. They're not 
moment after moment after moment like we read it. This is a man who lives his life out in faithfulness. And we've got to do the same. We've got to keep walking forward in this life with God. Keep walking forward like Abraham. We're going to have those highlights. We're going to have all those memories we have. Like, I remember God in this moment when he did this great thing for me. And I remember when he healed this person. And I remember all these things. But if we were just to write all those down and then read them back to back to back, it's like God was present every second. And yeah, he was. But not necessarily in this great, powerful, overwhelming, obvious way. There's a thousand subtle moments between each high, you know? That's true for us, too. We can't just look at the highlights and assume that that's what every moment of our life is going to be. The character-defining, the character-shaping things, the things that make those moments as great as they are, are living the life of faithfulness in between all those moments. That's not to say on the process of our journey to become better people and better Christians and more more Christ-like. That's not to say there aren't moments where we have huge jumps, huge leaps. But the thing that makes us head the direction of Jesus is the broken path of moment to moment. The leap will never compare to the vast amount of journey that's just a broken trail with an upward trajectory. You can't look at any one moment. It's not a straight line. You can't look at any one moment and say, I will definitely be better than I was at this moment. Because it's a broken path. It goes up and down. But the hope is that it's an upward trajectory towards Jesus. It looks more and more like him. But for these highlights to become highlights, for them, for you to become the person in which you respond to things the way you want to, for to be the person you want to be in the moments where it really counts. You've got to live the life of faithfulness in between. You've got to live the life of faithfulness in the 25 years waiting for the promise. If you don't do that, when the moment comes, you miss it. You miss it because you're not equipped for it. You miss it because you're not prepared for it. You miss it because you're not the person yet who can do the hard thing. If you went in Genesis 12 and it had been like a half an hour of the promise and then we went straight to Genesis 22 where it's like, hey, Abraham, I'm going to give you a seed. And then he waits a half an hour and then he has a son. And then he's asked to do Genesis 22, go sacrifice your son. You think Abraham does it? I don't think so. I don't think so. It's the 25 years of believing in the promise of walking out the life of faith that equips Abraham to be willing to listen to the voice of God so clearly that he's willing to walk up on Mount Moriah with Isaac in tow. That moment doesn't happen without Abraham living out the life of faithfulness for many, many years. God gives hard asks. He does. It's going to happen. That's something I don't think any of us have learned. Obviously, it's not going to be this. 
that is significant. And of course, this moment's so significant because of what the New Testament's going to make of it, what it says about what God will do with his own son. But for us, us who are not God, who are small, finite, struggling through life to be the best that we can be, who even want that, thanks to the Holy Spirit, <laughs> to be the best person we can to be as much like Jesus as we can accomplish in this life. For those of us who are like that, we, we have to follow, follow out the days of our lives following God. We have to, we have to follow Him in the, in the small moments, in the valleys between the high points, between the mountain peaks. I don't necessarily even mean that as, as good and bad times. I mean, just in, in the points where we see God so clearly, for every moment that, that we have one of those, we have a, a, a hundred million in which we're just like, whoa, God, are you, I feel like I haven't heard from you in forever. Like, are you there right now? I'm just living my day-to-day -day life. I'm getting up and brushing my teeth. I'm Eli fell and hurt himself. Like that—that's that life is where you become the person you're going to become. The high points are the revelation of who you are, but it's the day-to-day -day moments that you become the person. We got to try and live it out. And I guess one of the reasons I defend Abraham so vigorously is because I think he reminds me of us. The saints of the New Testament living in an age, him before a law, before the law came, before so much of God's expressed will came in the form of the law. Abraham lived before that. He didn't know everything he did that was wrong. God hadn't revealed it to him. We have, the, we have the knowledge to look back on Abraham and be like, hey, maybe some of everything he did wasn't you know, perfectly good. But he lives in a, in a manner that's very similar to us, that's we live in the age of grace, led by the Spirit, no longer under law. And that's what it reminds me of. I think he lived a life similar to us. You've got to do the same. Believe in the promise. Like I've told you before, the promises that God's given us personally, the promises he's given the community of God, the promises he's given humanity. Live believing in the promise, but walk forward in the in-between like Abraham, knowing that we're called to be people of faith and live that out while we wait. All right, that's all I have for you tonight. I'm going to turn it over to Tyler.